0: of howard bloom in this and he's uh wanted to promote his new book about michael jackson
1: well actually it's a book about my deep dive into rock and roll i'm not a rock and roll person basically i got started in science at the age of 10 in microbiology and theoretical physics but at the age of 12 i suddenly became fascinated by the ecstatic experience um the religious experience partly that was due to the fact that i just realized i was an atheist um So when I I got out of college, I had uh, four graduate fellowships in neuroscience and realized I would, if I were in grad school and if I went beyond grad school, if I had a career in neuroscience, I would never get anywhere near the ecstatic experience that I was after. So I skipped my four fellowships in neuroscience and I went into a field I knew nothing about popular culture. Popular culture was the culture of the kids used to beat me up and chase me around the block. Um, so I wasn't particularly interested up to that point. But I went into it knowing that this was going to be a deep dive, a scientific expedition into the dark underbelly where new myths and movements are made. And uh, that led me eventually to found the biggest PR firm in the music industry, industry. Um, So I worked with Michael Jackson, Prince, Bob Marley, Bette Midler, Billy Joel, Billy Idol, Paul Simon, Peter Gabriel, David Byrne, um, ACDC, Aerosmith, Kiss Queen. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. ZZ Top, Run DMC. And uh, and it was possibly the most fascinating experience of my entire life because I was diving deep, deep as I possibly could to find the souls of people like Michael Jackson. So Einstein, Michael Jackson and me, A Search for Soul... In the Power Pits of Rock and Roll is the story of my adventures as a scientific person trying to understand what soul and the ecstatic experience is all about, deep diving and having adventure after adventure in the souls of some of the biggest stars of the 70s and the 80s. And it's been named, let's see if I can remember. It's been named the best book of 2020 by the New York Weekly Times and the LA Weekly Times. And it's been named 2020's most soulful book on planet Earth by the Hollywood something or other. I forget the name of the publication. I'm going to have to go look it up at some point. But plus, there are two films out. Well, there's one film out about me, which you can get on Amazon or you can get on Apple or everything except um, um, Netflix. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get it on. And it's called The Grand Unified Theory of Howard Bloom. It's a 66-minute documentary. And it's one best film at the Design Science Film Festival in California and uh, best feature length documentary at the Knopf Film Festival in Italy. So that's basically some of the stuff that's going on around here, except there's another film that's in the works called My Dinner with Howard Bloom. And we'll see when that comes out.
0: You know, I wanted to contact you because you always say that you have chronic fatigue syndrome. But I couldn't really find much information publicly speaking about it. And I relate to it because I'm nar- I have narcolepsy, narco- narcolepsy. Oh, my
1: God. Okay. So that explains your interest in, in therapeutic stuff. Because yes. you've done a lot of therapeutic stuff interviews. Well, it was 1998. I had uh, begun to go back to my science in 1981 while I was still running the, the uh, PR business, the biggest PR firm in the music business and working with film as well, and in my spare time, which I didn't have any of because I worked seven days a week, all my waking hours, but um, basically, if I could grab some time on the train in the way into Manhattan in the morning from Park Slope, Brooklyn, um, I started going back to see what science had been up to um, since I had left it in 1968, and then I started to write a book with the encouragement of a lot of the major press people in the rock business and my first book. And, um, 1998, something horrible happened to me. I was, I was due to fly down to, I forget which territory, I think it was Virginia to, uh, West Virginia, um, to meet with the Womacks. The Womacks were, um, Linda Womack, who was Sam Cooke's daughter, and uh, Cecil Womack, who had co-written the first hit the Rolling Stones had ever had. And um, Chris Blackwell, the guy who put Reggae on the map, had tasked me with handling their PR. So I was flying down to meet with them. And um, I flew down to this airport, God knows where, and I was picked up by a Jeep and we drove five miles into the countryside. Um, I mean, not five miles, five hours into the countryside. And we arrived at this hill, gently sloping hill, with a house that looked like an aircraft hangar um, on top of it, and surrounded by sheep grazing on the grass. And I got out of the Jeep, I walked over to the house, remember it was March 10th, so it was the beginning, uh, it was the end of winter. Um, and the be rough beginning of spring. And it turned out that Lyndon um, and Cecil were building themselves this house, but it wasn't complete. It didn't have any furniture and it didn't have a heating system. So we sat there on the hardwood floors for um, five or six hours while I got one of the most fascinating stories of my life. It turns out that the, uh, they're black and it turns out that uh, there was a whole community of black coal miners. I hadn't known that. And these black coal miners basically keep their morale up while they're digging in the darkness way beneath the earth um, by singing. And they get so good at it, at least certain groups got so good at it that in addition to their mind singing, they did church singing. And then they started getting on buses and touring. And it was that background out of which Sam Cooke had come so I was fascinated. I was taking notes like crazy. When I got on the plane on the way back to New York, I organized my notes in my little TRS-100, the very first laptop computer. And when I got home that night, I realized I had done something very uncharacteristic. I had left my laptop on the plane. And there was no, we never found it. Um, but the next day, I felt I had a cold coming on. A main way of dealing with a cold was work through it. So I did my two and a half miles of walking that day. I worked from the time I got up until the time I went to sleep. That day, the normal. The the next day, Sunday, the cold was just a little bit worse. Nonetheless, I worked through it. Monday, when I got to the office, I can't even remember what happened. Tuesday, when I got to the office by noon, I knew that if I didn't get home really quickly, I would simply not have the strength to walk up the stairs. So my staff called me a car service. They got under my armpits. You've seen the fireman's carry. Um, And they got me to the elevator. I somehow slung myself like a bag of potatoes into the car. And I somehow managed to get up the stairs to my home on the fourth floor. And and I was in bed for the next something like six weeks. And at some points, I was too weak to even think. You know how... Humans are built to be dissatisfied, so we are built to pick away at ourselves when we are all by ourselves, when there's no company around, and um, be severely critical of ourselves. I didn't even have the energy to do that. I lay there staring at the ceiling perfectly contented um, for six weeks, and then I seemed to get better, but I wasn't. One day, I Went out to uh, the Meadowlands for a Scorpions concert. I came back to uh, Manhattan for a John Mellencamp concert at Carnegie Hall. I mean, at, uh, uh, at Madison Square Garden. The next day, I went out to Queens. Uh, Cindy Lauper was graduating from college. She had never, or high school rather, she had never graduated. And now her high school was giving her an honorary high school diploma. And that was it. That was the end of me. And uh, weird things began to happen. Um, I started having chills when it was 90 degrees out. I was literally shivering. Um, I started um, doing the opposite. When the temperature went down, I was overheated when the temperature went down. I had no, I was getting weaker and weaker and weaker. I was taking meetings by going to offices um, by car instead of walking, which is what I usually did. and uh, and laying there on the couch to take the meeting because I couldn't sit up. And finally I walked into my office and gathered my staff and said, I don't know what's wrong with me. I could be dying. And so I'm gonna have to leave in two weeks and I'm giving you the business. And that was the end of that. I went home and became too weak to talk um, and too weak to have another person in the room with me for five years. And doctors had no idea of what it was at all. Uh, My family doctor, I finally came to him and said, I think I have this thing called chronic fatigue syndrome. And he said, nonsense, there is no such thing as chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, A couple of years later, he called me and he said, thank you for educating me about chronic fatigue syndrome. I've been spotting it in my patients over and over again ever since. But at that point, doctors didn't believe in it. Um, and it was still called Epstein-Barr, even though it turns out to have nothing to do with the Epstein-Barr virus whatsoever. And um, I lost my sense of humanity. Everything that I'd imagined in my future disappeared. I, couldn't be, I wouldn't be able to do any of them, not a single one of them. And all I had to cling to <clears throat> was my book, which was half written at that point. And some days I was too weak to lift my hands to the keyboard, but eventually what we did, I used to try to go up to my front room where I had my favorite office chair and work. And that would just was not working out. I tried it for a year and it just, I'd, I'd get up to the point where I could sit there for nine hours and then I'd have a relapse. And I'd have to start all over again from trying to sit there 15 minutes and the next day, 30 minutes and the day after that 45 minutes. And it that just wasn't working out Mateo so it, it occurred to me after three years to get my assistant to set up two computers next to the bed why two computers because in those days two computers had less than the processing power of your cell phone um, and I needed a lot of processing power for the work that I was doing so I had him set up two computers next to the bed I had him get a Chinese box that allowed you to control two computers with a single monitor and a single keyboard um, we put bolsters under the keyboard so it was tilted up at an angle so that when I was laying flat on the bed, I could see the keys. Um, and I, I started to develop a whole new personality and a whole new life. And that new personality was online. Um, and that new life was what I could cobble together using the internet.
0: Were you doing it, it anonymously the- or publicly?
1: I was doing this publicly, but the internet was a very dark place in those days. There weren't that many people on it and it didn't have browsers yet. And it didn't have the World Wide web yet. It didn't light up with visuals yet. It was message boards at best. Um, It was text and that was it. But I discovered that souls come alive online. You know, you can meet somebody who's 450 pounds. If you met her in person, you'd be horrified. But if you met her online, you weren't meeting that accident of her body. I mean, she never chose to be a 450 pound person. Um, You met who she really was. And it was a whole different experience from this experience of accidental bodies, accidental faces, things that we can't control. Um, It was souls coming together. And um, after the first five years, I, I. gradually regained the ability to talk. My wife got a call from VPRO TV in Holland. And they said, we want to do a three-hour special on your husband's book, The Lucifer Principle, A Scientific Expedition into the Forces of History. And she said, well, my husband has been unable to talk for five years. He's just slowly worked his way up to being able to speak an entire five minutes. And they said, "Okay, we'll fly into New York. We'll get a hotel as near you as we can. And we'll come out five days in a row. We'll get five minutes each day. And they came out and it turned out with an audience, I could do 15 to 20 minutes. Um, but that was, that was the beginning of my being able to at least speak again. Um, so I took advantage of that time. Taking advantage is a strange way to put it because when you're in a ghastly, ghastly shape and you're nauseous every second of the day, um, putting together a life is a very different thing than we might imagine it to be. But I um, wrote three books and I founded two international scientific groups. And one of the groups made a really big difference in evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology. It put something called group selection, which you hadn't been allowed to talk, to, talk about in evolutionary biology up to that point. It was just forbidden. Um, it put it on the map. And made it possible to speak about it openly, to write about it in journal articles openly. So that was my journey with that illness. Um, and then there's the whole other journey of how in the world do you get better? I mean, you know, right now I'm probably stronger than I've ever been in my life in many, many ways. I do 1,250 vibrational plankings a morning, um, I walk six miles a day. Um, with two Kindles. So I'm listening to books and having phone meetings and stuff like that. I double task at that time. Um, and I work all my waking hours seven days a week again. And I handle 15 projects simultaneously, including running a space group that includes the former governor of New York State, David Patterson, who's a Democrat like me. Um, Newt Gingrich, who's obviously not a Democrat like David Patterson and me. Um, Robert Walker, who's the former head of the House Science Committee, former congressman, um, and a former three-star general, Steve Quast. So I'm doing 15 projects of that kind at a time. Now it's up to 16 because there's a Howard Bloom Institute being founded to uh, promote my ideas after I die, um, to keep them alive and to keep them growing. And... um, And the big question is, how in the world do you pull that off? How do you get out of CFS? Well, first of all, you never know. You don't know if what you're doing is really responsible or not. I think it is. But um, my wife managed to persuade a chronic fatigue syndrome specialist to come out to the house to visit me because I was incapable of getting down my stairs. I was incapable often of walking to my kitchen, which is only 15 steps away my bedroom door. Um, And he came out and saw me. And the most important thing that he did was he gave me the email address of another patient of his in Texas. So that other patient and I in Texas went out diligently searching for treatment modalities for CFS. And um, I went through newsletters on CFS from cover to cover, looking for treatment options. And when something sounded good to the two of us, you have an instinct for this and it can be wrong or it can be right, who knows. But I had a feel for some of the things that sounded like they might work for me. And she would check out the treatment protocol. In other words, she'd go to the doctor who developed the use of this stuff for CFS and find out what the dosage was, how many times a day, all of that kind of stuff. And we would get the treatment protocol to my doctor and my doctor would sit on it for six months, um, which is in, just drives you crazy because when you are that sick, you just, you're accustomed all your life to having been normal when it comes to your health. And you can't wait another day to go back to being normal. But, so six months is an eternity, but he would sit on it for six months. And then when he could finally regurgitate it as his own idea, he would give me the prescription. And I ended up on, I'm on 30 different medications now. It takes an hour a day to take all of the pills and give myself my daily shot, um, but it's worth it. And I can listen to magazines or the news while I'm doing it. So I'm doing my homework. I'm not losing any time. Um, but the, the, do you want to know the, uh, the various chemicals involved in, in this treatment?
0: Well, I'm on a lot of them myself.
1: Aha. So what do you take?
0: Um, Zyrum, Sinozi, and the shot. You take.
1: Oh, so, so you take um, one half CC magnesium, one yeah. CC of oxytocin. Excellent. Yeah. Um, the big thing for me has been gabapentin. I'm not and on it. You're you're not on it. No. Well, it it might be worth trying because okay. here's how I discovered how powerful gabapentin was in this mix. Um, I had been asked to speak at an international conference of quantum physicists in Moscow. And this is theoretical physics. And theoretical physics was my base. It's what I started in at the age of 10. Um, and so this was like a call home. This was like recognition um, for the work that I had been doing in quantum physics. And there's no way I wanted to miss it, but it was taking a huge chance to take a flight to Moscow because Chronic fatigue syndrome was very strange. It's like a dragon in, in a lair, sleeping. And you have certain invisible boundaries. And if you cross those invisible boundaries, the dragon wakes up. And you have a relapse. And your relapse can last three months or six months. It's horrible. Um, but I took the chance. So all the way, we had a connecting flight in Germany. All the way to Germany, I was sorry. I was having a wonderful time. Then we got on the plane from Germany to Moscow, and all of a sudden, halfway through that flight, I began experiencing chronic fatigue syndrome symptoms again. It was scary, and I realized that I, because of going through all these time zones and all the exhilaration of flying, I had lost track of the time, and I had forgotten to take my afternoon dose of pills, so we got To the airport. The airport was scary. There were all these guys in military uniforms carrying semi-automatic weapons. And, um, And my assistant found out where the infirmary was, worked out a deal with the infirmary people. They took away my passport in exchange for letting me lay down. And I told my assistant, go through the luggage and get me the gabapentin. I don't know why I had the feeling that that was the magic ingredient. And he got me the gabapentin and within 15 minutes, I was back to highly energetic and superman. Um, So the gabapentin makes a huge difference. There have been times when I have begun to feel the chronic fatigue syndrome symptoms creep up on me around six or seven o'clock at night and have wondered why I was so tired, why I just wanted to go to bed. And then I went back and looked at my records. I have to keep careful records because I'm a a klutz. Yeah. And I could easily miss uh, a dose of something. And sure enough, every single time, it's turned out that I've forgotten to take my afternoon dose of gabapentin. So I highly recommend gabapentin. For many people, it does not work. But for those people it works for, it's magic. Right. Well, I was explaining that there I was in Moscow at the airport. I was in real serious chronic fatigue syndrome symptom phase. Uh, I was weak as could possibly be. My assistant asked around, even though he didn't speak any Russian and very few people bothered to speak English. um, He found the infirmary. He got me in. I had to surrender my passport in order to find a place to lay down, which is Mateo, that's scary. Very. In Russia. Yeah, Hostile nation. to be the time, a human Cold being. War. Yeah, yes, exactly. So, um, and and I had an intuition and said, now that you've got my luggage out, go into the luggage, get the um, gabapentin, because I forgot to take my afternoon pills. Now, Mateo, I take 30 afternoon pills. Yes. So the, the gabapentin is just part of the load. But he went and got the gabapentin, I took the gabapentin within 15 minutes. I was back to Superman within 15 minutes. I was back to being capable of conquering the world or at least feeling that way. Um, again, so the gabapentin really is magic, at least for me. So how does your narcolepsy affect your life?
0: Well, when I was before the medication, I was on, um, I would sleep three days straight without waking up and then it'd be a more. Amazing. And when I was in that state of being, that when I was younger, I really did feel like being on drugs.
1: Well, how old were you when it started?
0: My narcolepsy att- attacks started full force at age 14 to all the way to age 19.
1: Wow. Amazing. So how, how well do your drugs manage the problem now?
0: 100%. And it took a long time to find research out to which drugs work.
1: Amazing. Amazing. And uh, and how did you get onto the shot? Um,
0: Recommendation from a doctor.
1: That's astonishing because I'm the only person who uses that. Um, it wasn't my doctor who came up with it; it was me who came up with it. Oh, really? Yes. However, my pamphlet—you know—I wrote a pamphlet on CFS um, a, a long time ago. Um, a friend of mine contacted me and said the Duchess of Kent has what you have. Could you write her a long letter? explaining how to handle it. So I wrote the long letter, it turned out to be a 13 page pamphlet, and sent it off. And in those days, I didn't have any drugs helping me. Um, All I had was learning how that when you have something like this, you have a limited energy piggy bank. Very true. And so you have to be very careful about how you spend that energy and you can't waste it. Remember I told you I used to go to the front room and try to sit in my favorite office chair yeah. every day and work, because work is my life. That's my joy, my work. That's my hobby. Um, and I realized, because you've got such a limited energy Bank, you're spending a lot of energy trying to sit up. If you lay down, you will have that energy for something else. And it was laying down, instead of sitting up, that brought my voice back after five years, as astonishing as that sounds. Um, a lot
0: of research, I know you have a science background. A lot of Green Party organizations in Europe assert that the neurological fatigue and various neurological problems like we have. Are the people are a response to, um, or an effect caused by what happened in Chernobyl?
1: Um, chronic fatigue syndrome vastly preceded Chernobyl. Okay. Um, I first ran across and I, I don't remember the dates of Chernobyl. It was probably 1987, 85. 1985. So, um, Hillary Johnson wrote a big, scary article about what she called Epstein bar, um, in Rolling Stone. Yeah. Probably around 1983. It could have been 19, after 1985. I'm not sure. I'd have to go look it up. But, um, it, it, you know, It's one of those articles you read, you read, and they're scary as all hell, but you know that you're never gonna get this. Well, guess what, I got it. Um, there are suspicions that Florence Nightingale had it because here she was an extraordinarily active woman who put together an entire movement for nursing. And yet after the Crimean War, she came back to her home and had to, if I understand it correctly, stay in her bedroom, stay in darkness. People who wanted to see her had to come to her home and it had to be under very controlled circumstances. Um, Charles Darwin came down with what appears to be something like CFS. You know, here he'd been this vigorous young man on that five-year trip around South America on the Beagle, um, the exploration ship. And now, all of a sudden, he was in bed all the time. He couldn't even present his ideas to the Royal Society himself. He had to get Thomas Huxley to do it for him because um, as easy a trip as it was to London, if he'd been healthy, it was impossible when he was sick. So there are a lot of indications. Marcel Proust. You've heard of the fact that Marcel Proust lived in a little room lined with dark cork. Yes. And But, but you probably never understood why he lived in a room lined with cork. And because it, I know in my case, I would lay on the bed my wife would try to keep me company. She would read the New York Post, which has great big pages. Yeah. And every time she turned the page, the sound went through me like a cannonball. It just ripped me apart. So Marcel Proust probably had that same kind of sound uh, vulnerability. Um, and he lined his room with cork so that he keep the street sounds out so he wouldn't be shattered as if by a cannonball, every two minutes. Interesting. Um, so there are a lot of indications that this illness has been around for a long time. And Chernobyl, I doubt it. You, know, you could easily blame it on contrails in the sky, because that's one big conspiracy theory. Yes. You could blame it on cell phones, because that's another big yes. conspiracy myth. There are lots of things you could blame it on. But um, I seriously doubt that it has to do with any of those things.
0: Interesting. No, because the, uh, the, uh, I was reading, ago, I was more interested in that one, that uh, one you think is bunk now, because so many high professionals pair in it.
1: Well, high professionals pair in a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. I went to a very expensive doctor when I was trying to figure out what was wrong with me. And during that brief period of time when I was able to get back to my office and work for a couple of months. And um, he came up with this name of a disease I'd never heard of before and can't even remember but it was obscure enough to impress you. And that's what he was trying to do, impress you. Mm. And it not, was not a correct diagnosis by any stretch of the imagination. When doctors don't know something, they try to pretend that they do know. And one of the ways they can pretend that they do know is saying, look, we tested you for everything physical. There's absolutely nothing wrong with you. It's all in your head. Which is what Anthony Fauci, who I admire for his activism, with the coronavirus, that's what he did to CFS. Yes. Um, And doctor after doctor after doctor still parrots that line. Um, So when doctors, there's the old Abraham Maslow saying, to a man whose only tool is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, And because doctors don't have a tool with which to deal with this, um, they say the most bizarre and damaging things, hurtful things. To Would
0: you. you say that also affects like the argument of, uh, uh, them making medicine more for treatment than for
1: curing? Well, look, when you're desperate and yeah, yeah. you and I've both been desperate, yeah. Oh, yeah. treatment is key. fine. It's much better than nothing. Yes. Um, curing is better, but who knows how you can get to curing. I mean, back in 1981, I came down, I had a back injury and the back injury got worse and worse and worse until I was working for three months out of my bed, naked under a sheet with a hospital tray table hovering above me with three out of my 7 Rolodexes, And I was putting together deals between New York, between LA and London. It was all very exhilarating for a while. And then I got so weak that I, for the first time in my life, couldn't talk for three months. Um, and um I, at the recommendation of a doctor, I had a physical therapist and the physical therapist who had lots of experience in this said, look, you're, you just have to recognize once you get better, you're going to have this problem every year. Well, I found this stuff because I did the research myself as usual with the help of an assistant and um, found this stuff called DMSO. And once I started to use it, my pain level went down a tiny bit every single day, a measurable tiny bit every single day and finally when i got out of bed i've never had that problem again so the point of the story is that was a cure it was Um, and cures very seldom happen in medicine so if you so if uh if you're really desperate and an illness like the ones you and i have had make you really desperate yes then any symptomatic relief no matter how superficial is a blessing
0: do you have anything to plug because we did the 40 minutes already
1: right no that's that's about it i you know i've got all these things 15 projects 16 now um happening in my life and uh which is an indication of the fact that i've actually gotten better
0: yes it is and that was this episode of howard bloom